All right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to lesson number four of Secrets of the Bible. Shh, this is super secretive, especially tonight. Tonight, this is it. This is why you're here. Trust me, tonight is why you're here. This, this is completely out of control in a good way. This is going to go so deep and so mind-blowing. You'll be like, where has this been all my life? But first, a question. And Jerry, please unmute yourself and get ready for this, because it's a very serious question, nonetheless, giving the cue to Jerry. Um, so who was the first person in the Bible to play tennis? And the answer is Joseph, because he served in Pharaoh's court. There we go. All right, tee it up. So <laughs> we got to start. We got to start with some sort of terrible humor, biblical humor. So Joseph, like I just said a moment ago, this is this is this is like if you want to know what this course is about, and all the lessons really did this. But tonight we're gonna go nuts. We're gonna go in a good way. We're gonna go like just completely out of control with Kabbalah and philosophy and classic Jewish commentaries and Jewish history and Jewish mystical thought, it's going to go in an amazing direction. And hopefully, here's my goal. I want to go with you. I want to travel with you tonight, step by beautiful step, along the path of understanding a story that we all have heard about, but understanding it in a completely new light. So the way we're going to do this is deconstruct the story, share the insights, reconstruct the story, and in the process, the story is no longer about Joseph and his brothers of 3,400 years ago. The story is about you and I. You see, once you get to the core of the story, then it becomes absolutely, imminently relevant for all of us. All right, so tonight we look at Joseph, the story of Joseph and his brothers, the rivalry, the, um, the drama, the richest to rags to riches story. We're going to go through every detail of it and explore it. This is not Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. This is Joseph and the amazing drama of historical proportions. This is Joseph reimagined tonight. Now, once again, this is what we're going to do. We're going to follow the same five-step program, same five-step storytelling or exploration method as we have in the previous three sessions. Step number one, we're going to tell the story. Step number two, we're going to ask a bunch of questions, or in this case, a few questions. Step number three, we're going to present the insights and Kabbalah. Step four, answer all the questions. Step five, walk away with life lessons. All right, we have so much to get to. No time for intros. Let's jump straight into the conversation. So we begin with part number one, part one um, of the story. So we're up to act one and part one. And here we learn about the story of the sale of Joseph. The way I'm going to do this, like in previous sessions, I'm going to read the story from the original verses. And as I read, I want you to think of your questions that you have on the story. And after I'm done reading, I'm going to ask you to ask the questions that you've come up with. Make sense? Yes? So read the story along with me, think of the questions, and then we are going to, we are going to, um, to, to discuss. All right, I'm going to share my screen with you once again. You should have 
Oh, wait, hold on. That's, I don't know what that is. Stop share. That was not the right screen. Share screen. Where is this? Oh, here we go. Bam, -bam. Okay, here we go. Sharing screen. Take a look at that. Okay, lesson number four, Joseph and his brothers. Okay, you should have your own books. By the way, if you don't have a book, please let me know. You can text me, email me, call me, or all of the above, or chat in the chat box. Let me know if you don't have a book. Everyone should have received a book, certainly at this point, um, and I will definitely rectify that if you do not have a book. But either way, I'm sharing my screen, so we're literally on the same page. Let's, I'm going to read the story. It's quite long, uh, and there's several parts to it. Pay attention. Think of questions. We'll discuss. Text 1A. Joseph was 17 years old, shepherding with his brothers in the flocks, and Joseph brought bad word of them to their father. Israel, Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than all his sons, as he was a child of old age to him, and he made him a striped coat, also known as the coat of many colors. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and they hated him and they were not able to speak peaceably with him. Let's continue with the dreams. Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told his brothers, Here we were bundling sheaves in the middle of the field, and here my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and here your sheaves surrounded, and they bowed to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Shall you then reign over us, or will you rule over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he... All right. Next, he again dreamed another dream and related it to his brothers. And he said, here, I have dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing to me. His brothers envied him, but his father guarded the matter. Okay, that's part one of, well, that's the first half of the first part. Now, we get past this beautiful artwork and we turn to text 1b. Again, please follow along and think of your questions on this story. At this point, the Torah tells us about the plot to kill Joseph. Um, just so you know, the brothers were shepherding. They were in the field doing their work. And Jacob sends Joseph to check on the brothers. See how they're doing. Well, famous last instructions. So Joseph saunters off to meet the brothers in the field. And this is what happens. They saw him from afar. And when he had yet to come near to them, they schemed against him to put him to death. And they said one to the other, here comes the dreamer. Now let us go and kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say an evil beast has devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. So what happens next is, just so you know, a little bit of uh, narration on my part, is that Reuben, the oldest of the 12 brothers, so Reuven, Reuben, says to the others, let's not kill him. Why should we kill him actively? Let's just throw him into one of the pits, right? So the suggestion was, kill him and throw him into the pits. Reuven says, Reuben says, don't kill him. Just throw him into the pits and he'll die on his own by, you know, whatever animals or he'll be attacked or he'll die of starvation. But why should our hands directly kill the child? That's what Reuben says. And according to the commentaries, Reuven, Reuven actually had intention, had in mind, that he was going to go back later after they had left to rescue him from the pit. Well, 
Reuben then goes off on his own, right? He's like, all right, it worked. They threw him into the pits, and he saunters off. Meanwhile, the rest of the brothers are there, the other nine, and this is what happens. When, the, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of, of his coat, the striped coat that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted their eyes, and they saw, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites. Remember Ishmael? A caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And Judah, now Judah speaks up, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? In other words, not even not directly killing him. Why should we keep him in the pit? What's the point of him dying? There's no money in that. <laughs> right? He's thinking like a business. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but our hand shall not be upon him as he is our brother, our flesh. His brothers listened and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they, the Ishmaelites, it seems, brought Joseph down to Egypt. All right, now what happens? Now the cover-up. So the brothers have just gotten rid of Joseph. What do they do next? All right, they took Joseph's coat, the striped coat of many colors, and they slaughtered a hairy goat, and they dipped the coat in the blood. They sent the striped coat and brought it to their father. And they said, we found this. Please recognize, is it your son's coat or not? Jacob recognized it and he said, my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him, torn. Joseph is torn. And he mourned his son many days. All right, that concludes part one of the story of Joseph. And now I turn to you. What questions do you have on this narrative? Please unmute and jump in. Any and all questions are welcome. Yes, Rabbi. Why didn't he tell his brothers? Why didn't he tell his brothers he had a dream? Did he try to irritate them? So you're saying, why, why did he provoke them? Why, why did he do that? For the simple reason, that's what would do. He would provoke them. If anybody else came and said, look, you, I'm going to rule over you, that's going to irritate some people, isn't it? I hear you. So you are, so you are a... Joseph sympathizer. No, sorry, you're, sorry, you're a brother sympathizer. And you're saying you can understand. Provoked and badgered. What's this nudnik coming around? You know the difference between the shlemiel, the shlemazel, and the nudnik? Okay, the shlemiel is holding the hot pot, is the one who spills the hot bowl of soup on the shlemazel, right? He's the spiller. The shlemazel is always the guy who gets spilled on. And the nudnik is the guy who says, tell me what kind of soup was it? Right? That's the nudnik. So he's the nudnik. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Um, that was surprising. Good. Good. Awesome. So, yeah. So he's the guy that says, oh, by the way, I had a dream. Yeah, and the dream is about you serving me. It's like, what are you doing? All right, good. So why is he, why is he um, provoking them? All right, good. Excellent. Any more questions, comments, thoughts? Yes. I want to know what does it mean when the verse says, but his father guarded the matter. When Excellent. He about the second dream. What does that mean? The brothers didn't like it. The father somehow knew that it was going to come. He held it. He was holding on to it. He was guarding it. He was keeping that prophecy dream. But it's a good, it's, it's a good question. Hold the question. I am going to guard this question matter for later in the lesson, and you'll see how it's explained beautifully by our insights. Excellent point. Um, uh, Jay, go ahead. Yeah, Jay. I, I 
I find it curious that they use the word Israel mm. instead of Jacob. Interesting. There's a relationship between Israel and Jacob when they use the word Israel and Jacob. But he's on earth right now. So this is a secular matter, so you would think it would say Jacob. Right, right. Good, good, good. Excellent point. So we know that Jacob's name um, at some point is changed to Israel. And then, usually, once a name is changed, the Torah doesn't go back. Like, Avram becomes Avraham, Abraham becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, and they never go back. But with Jacob and Israel, the Torah interchanges, and there are, there's a significance, there's a, there's a formula as to why each one is used. So Jay's pointing out, let's think about why was Israel used in this case. When, when Israel is like the loftier name, Jacob is the more you know, earthly, down-to-earth name, so why here is Israel used in the context of this very um, seemingly earthly sibling, sibling rivalry? Good, good point, good question. Let's see if we can address it tonight. Jerry, I see you have a question. I, yeah, the question I had was, if Judah was the provocateur to sell his brother off to, to the Ishmaelites, how does he then merit being the ancestors of the kings? Excellent question. What business? He's the guy that says sell him as a slave for 20 pieces of silver and he becomes promoted to the ruler? Good question. Excellent. Adina Malka. Oh, what does it mean? It said that um, it sounded like he was tattling on his brothers. They were out in the field and then he came and told, told on them to his father. Yep. What did he say? What was this? What was the nature? So Morris said... The, the provocation is him saying, I'm going to be the king over you. I had these dreams, blah, blah, blah. And Adina Malka, you're saying even before the dreams, it seems like he was bringing negative reports against the brothers to the father saying, hey, dad, um, oh, my gosh, you'll never believe what the brothers were doing, whatever. I'm not even going to tell you. Oh, fine, you want to know? Okay, here's what happened. Right, so he seems to be reveling in some sort of uh, provocation. He brought bad word of them to their father. That's the, that's the quote in text 1a. Yeah, so what is the nature of this and what's behind this? Excellent question. Again, we'll see if we can get it. Mindy, go ahead. I think it's worth pointing out that, that Jacob had a favorite, that he didn't love all his children equally, because now we're, that would be incredibly not PC, like you love all your children equally, but Jake, um, Joseph was his favorite because his mother was Rachel, who was his favorite wife. But also Benjamin was also Rachel. So that's going to come into play later when Ex we see Benjamin interact with Joseph. Excellent. But I think it's important to point out that, um, that he played favorites and that sparked the jealousy among the brothers. And also important to point out that the brothers um, tricked tricked Jacob when they showed him the bloody coat. And they, they lied and tricked him. So that, and um, Joseph never lied, you know, lied. Okay, interesting. Both very, very compelling points, and both we will address throughout the session. All right, let's take some more. Mark, go ahead. It occurs to me that this whole litany, this whole litany of sins which Joseph committed, the Lushan aura, uh, putting himself above his brothers with, with the dreams. Uh, he was 17 years old, so he wasn't a child. He knew what was happening. Um, yet we hear, we, we, we believe that Joseph was a righteous man. These are not the actions of a righteous man. And he was 17. So how can that be 
Justin. Excellent, excellent. How do we explain Joseph's righteousness if he's provoking, if he's saying Lashon Hara, negative talk about the other person, about his brothers? Excellent. So how do we call him Yosef HaTzadik, Joseph the Righteous One? Good. Um, Anastasia. Yeah, I have a question. Actually, on the previous lecture, you told us that if God shares with you some commands, you keep it. But Excellent. Why he shared with uh, everyone? Excellent. That's a, that's, a, that's a very excellent question. We said before that in general, the rule is, if God gives you a message, it's for you. And you only share it if you're told to share it. Well, Joseph has a dream, and he believes it means something about his uh, ultimate uh, eventual uh, leadership. What gives him the permission to share the dream with his brothers, it's a message for him. It's a premonition, a vision, a prophecy for him. What gives him the right to share it? Good, excellent question. Um, Stan. I think the, uh, the issue of deceit here is very interesting because uh, uh, Jacob is now being deceived Ooh. by his sons, where previously one could argue that Jacob was the great deceiver of his father, uh, to attain the position that he got. So Love it. Goes around, comes around. Love it. Love it. You'll see it gets even, wor- it gets even deeper. We're going to go down a rabbit hole. It, this is going to be, like I said before at the beginning of the class, this is going to be edge of your seat, thrilling, mind-blowing stuff, and a lot of deception in, today as, in today's session as well. Steve, it looks like you got something. I just think it's interesting that a goat was used twice for deception. Yes. It's going to be a, an aha moment in the next hour. Oh, you called it. You're, you're, yes, you are Tono Ro, Tony Romoing this, um, the famous uh, new color commentator who likes to call plays because he's a former quarterback. Yes, you are, yes, hairy goat. When, what, let me ask you the question. When was the hairy goat found previously in scripture? Uh, when, when Jake, to deceive and to get the blessing. Remember he wore the skins, the goat skins, the hairy skins. Notice it says they, they, they slaughtered a hairy goat and they dipped the coat in the blood. Why do we have to know the nature of the skin of the goat? They used goat blood as one thing, but that the goat was hairy, who cares? Okay. It, yeah. Are there any unhairy goats? That's a very good question, and I feel a little bit underqualified to answer, although my assumption is no, there aren't any non-hairy goats. Um, okay, good. Yeah, Mark, let, final word, and then we're going to move on to the next section. Um, Jacob knew his older sons had it in for Joseph. When it says he recognized the bloody... The, the, court of many, the coat of many colors. He says, my son's coat, an evil beast has devoured him. Is he saying your animal souls have devoured him? Interesting. Is he using evil beast as a euphemism, or does it mean literally that he believes that, an evil, that, a, that a wild animal has devoured his son? Excellent, excellent question. Hold the question. We'll come back to all of these. Now, let's move on to part two of our story. Now, Here's the deal. Part two of the story tonight doesn't take place immediately after the sale. No, this takes place, we're going to fast forward 22 years after this episode of the sale of Joseph. We're going to fast forward 22 years to the, the, the reunion between Joseph and his brothers all those years, that two, dec- two decades plus later. 
But let me give you a very, very quick, like, fill in the story in between. What happens in between? So Joseph is sold as a slave to Egypt. He ends up, I'm going to say it pretty fast, he ends up in this fellow named Potiphar's house. Potiphar was one of the officers of Egypt, a pharaoh, and he's working now as a slave, as a sold slave in Potiphar's house. He's immensely successful. Even as a slave, everything he touches turns to gold. Potiphar eventually entrusts him with everything, his entire house, all of the affairs, everything. And... As you probably know, there's one more catch. Potiphar's wife also likes him, but not for the work that he's doing, but she finds him attractive. So she arranges things that they're alone one day in the house, and she makes a move and, 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 and tries to convince Joseph to be with her intimately. Joseph, the Talmud says, struggles with this. Part of him is wanting to say yes. Ultimately, he says no um, he tries to run away from her. She grow, holds on to his jacket or his shirt or his cloak, whatever it was. He runs off. She has it in her hand. And at this point, she flips the narrative and she, she cries out, the Hebrew slave has assaulted me, has attacked me. And they arrested or whatever. I'm using modern terminology. They arrested Joseph and threw him into the dungeon and threw away the keys. He was um, thrown into jail, into prison for something that he didn't do. But that was it. He was a slave and he was accused by, you know, the, the, the woman of the house of, of a horrible crime. And of course, he's thrown away in prison. Well, even in prison, the Torah tells us he's very successful and he soon becomes the right-hand man of the warden of the prison. So there he is. And once again, no matter where he is, he's ri he rises to the top. And one day, the Torah tells us that there were two others, amongst the others, there were two with him that had high uh, positions of prominence. There was the butcher and the baker. Apparently, the candlestick maker couldn't make it that day. Anyway, the butcher and the baker, they were the, the royal butcher and baker of Egypt, the pharaoh. They were in prison with him, and they both have a dream, and their faces are downcast the next morning. And Joseph says, why are you sad? What's wrong? Tell me. They each say, we had a dream. We don't know what it means. He says, tell me your dreams. Remember, Joseph, the dreamer, he knows a thing or two about dreams. So they tell him the dreams. They tell him their dreams, and he interprets their dreams. The baker, he says, you're not going to make it out alive, indeed. The butler, you will make it out alive, indeed. Well, a few years later, Pharaoh has a dream, and Pharaoh's looking for a dream interpreter. The butler says, I remember this dude, this guy named Joseph, this Hebrew slave in prison, in the dungeon. Why don't you ask him? Pulls him out. Pharaoh tells him the dreams. Joseph nails it. As you know, seven years of famine, seven years of plenty with the interpretation. Joseph says, not only is it a dream, it's a call to action. Quickly, Pharaoh, you should go ahead and collect and save and store the grain from the years of plenty because soon enough, it's not going to be good and you'll need the reserves, what you're saving now, for then. Pharaoh says, you're amazing. You got the dream. It makes sense. You got a plan of action. You be the one to facilitate. Joseph becomes viceroy. And now he's in charge of the finances, the economy, and the food. And when people come, to, and the seven years pass, the good years, now the years of famine, everyone else has hit hard except for Egypt. Egypt is in a good place because they saved. Well, this affects Joseph's family back in Canaan, namely Jacob and his other 11 sons. And so Jacob, at some point, sends his sons down to Egypt to buy food from where the food was to be found. So the brothers come down, 10 of them, not Benjamin, 10 of them come down, 
and Joseph sees them, recognizes them. They do not recognize him. He looked different. He was dressed differently, certainly. So Joseph says, he's, Joseph accuses them of being spies. They say, we're not spies. We're just coming to buy food. He says, you are spies, 10 brothers. Why are you here? What's going on? And they start talking about the family. We have a father. We have a brother that we don't know where he, where, he, where he is. Of course, that's Joseph himself. And one brother is still with her dad, Benjamin. He says, I don't believe you. You have to go back and bring back Benjamin. And then, and then we can have the conversation. So they go back. And he says, and until then, I'm imprisoning one of your brothers right now. He takes Shimon, Simeon, he imprisons, imprisons him, sends the rest back home. They want to bring back Benjamin. Jacob, the father, says, don't bring back Benjamin. Uh, I don't want to lose another son. So they eventually say there's no food. We got to do this. So he reluctantly agrees to send Benjamin. Benjamin comes down with the other brothers back down to Egypt. Joseph releases Simeon, who he had imprisoned until Benjamin came down, and at this point, all of the brothers are there. But one more, one more twist. Joseph plants a, his royal goblet in Benjamin's bags, and he sends them on their way, and then he sends somebody to catch up with them and say, you stole my cup, you stole my goblet, and they looked, and they found it in Benjamin's bag, and they arrest Benjamin they put him in prison. At this point, Judah, the same Judah that was the one who recommended the sale as opposed to the pit, Judah steps in front of Joseph and says, Viceroy, he doesn't know he's Joseph, Viceroy of Egypt, we got to make a deal or you got to let him go. I got to bring him back to his father. I got to bring back this kid, Benjamin, to my father. And this is where the story picks up. I hope that made sense. I know I went through it pretty quickly, but hopefully that was a good enough review. Here we go. Text 2, Genesis 45, verse 1. Joseph, at this point, when Judah confronts him, Joseph was no longer able to constrain himself. And he called, remove every man from my presence. And no man stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He put his voice to weeping, and Egypt heard, and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said to his brothers, those famous words, Ani Yosef, Haod Avichai, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him as they were bewildered before him. <laughs> Imagine your whole world is pulled out from under your feet. You think this is... The viceroy of Egypt, he's giving you a hard time, and it turns out he's your brother. Um, and Joseph said to his brothers, now do not be distressed, and it should not upset you that you sold me here. For as a source of livelihood, God has sent me before you. It is not you who sent me here, but God. Hurry up, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, so said your son Joseph. God has placed me master to all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. So this is text two, this story, this page that we just read, page 106. This is where Joseph finally reveals his identity and confesses his true identity to his brothers. All right, any questions on this piece? Ray. Um, okay, so we know how many years have transpired since he was thrown into the pit until now. Um, he had an opportunity as the viceroy to go back and let his father know he was alive. He didn't do that. Right. Good question. Your question is, if Joseph was the second in command in Egypt, you would think he could have sent a telegram, sent the Pony Express, sent the smoke signal, sent some flares, sent the bat signal, sent something, an email, a WhatsApp, a voice note, a tweet, right? You would think, but no, garnish, nothing. All right. Good question. It looks like um, he's maintained his Hebrew identity. He, he, he's a monotheist. He says, God sent me. I mean, he's, in a, he's the viceroy. They have all the idols. Yeah, kind of he's still, still in a good place. 
Good. my understanding that the, um, the, the slaves themselves maintained their identity throughout the entire 400 years. Later on, yeah, as the Jewish people came down to Egypt ultimately and, and were, were enslaved, correct. By and large, they kept their identity. Good. He is in his 40s at this time. What is his marital He's married with two kids. He married, oh, listen to this plot twist. He married the daughter of the woman who accused him of assault. Got to keep it in the family. Um, and he has two sons. He has two sons. Yep. Yep. Okay. Good. Good, good, good. Mark. I just noticed this here. Um, he still, Joseph was still alienated from his brothers. Because he says, hurry and go up to my father, not our father. Good. So why is he saying my father good and not your father? Excellent. Okay, good. I want to, listen, we're going to address a lot of these questions. Some of them we're not going to address tonight, directly, maybe indirectly. Here's the deal. I want to ask two primary questions. And, and these questions have multiple sub-questions, but nonetheless, I want to divide them into two. And it's really important. And I think you're going to agree with me on these questions. I mean, these are like the basic essential questions. Question number one is what were the brothers thinking? And question number two is what was Joseph thinking? And let me explain what I mean. Question one, what, was, what were the brothers thinking? How could they kill, murder, kidnap, th or throw into a pit, kidnap, sell as a slave? I mean, human trafficking, what they did was frankly horrific. How could they have done this to their brother. And I know what you're thinking. You might be thinking, well, it's not the first time brothers have acted unkindly toward a sibling. It's, it seems like the Torah tradition. Cain and Abel. hey oh, right? Cain kills Abel. And then you have Ishmael and, and, and Isaac and their rivalry. And then you have Esau and Jacob per last week, their rivalry. And it seems like every generation there's a rivalry. So you tell me that the brothers plotted to kill um, kidnap, kill, or sell as a slave their brother, yeah, it makes sense. The problem is the 10 brothers that were involved in this were not the same as Cain, not the same as Ishmael, and not the same as Esau. And how do I know this? Because the Jewish people, yeah, the Jewish people are all stemming from the 12 tribes, including these 10. You with me on this? It's not like Esau, the bad brother, so he's whatever. He's not part of the family. Or Ishmael, yeah, he was sent away. Cain, listen, he, he had to wander the rest of his life. It's not that. These, our understanding, the classic traditional Jewish understanding of, of this story or, or of this entire narrative, not specifically this one, but the, the, the biblical narrative, is that the children of Jacob were all tzaddikim. And before the question was asked, well, how was Joseph righteous if he was saying Lashon Hara, if he was saying negative things about his brothers? But I'm asking the other question, how can we understand that righteous people, the brothers, are conspiring to kill, kidnap, kill, and, and sell as a slave? It doesn't make sense. To show you what I'm referring to, to give you a little bit of insight into what I am referring to, let me share my screen with you one more time. And I'm going to bring up text number three. 
Text number three is coming from the Shalash, Neiluchor Habrit. It's a mystical work um, by Rabbi Yeshayo Alevi Horowitz. Take a look at this text. Okay, Jay, if you don't mind, please read text number three. Before explaining how the story of the selling of Joseph and all that happened with him is the basis for the kingdom of David and the Mashiach, we must address the great difficulties with this story. First of all, a most general difficulty, the greatness of the sons of Jacob, the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, is well known. Certainly, they were greater than the supernal angels, as they represent the mystical 12 configurations of the divine name of Haviah. How then? Could the mind grasp the idea that these exalted individuals would join together to commit the most severe sin of all the sins in the world, namely the sin of murder? So the Shalah, the premise of the Shalah's question is, look, these are, we're not dealing with 10 bro- with brothers, you know, whatever, that, that, are, that are off the rails, that are evil. We're dealing with holy tribes. We're dealing with the Shvatim. We're dealing with um, holy individuals, holier than angels. So how can we fathom, how can we imagine this concept of them planning and plotting to harm in such a, in such a terrible way to harm their brother? How can we make sense of this? All right, so that's the first question. What were the brothers thinking? That is, that is question number one. Question number two, as I said before, question two is, what was Joseph thinking? And this question is at the end, is on the end of the story, the second half of the story. You see, as you recall, as you will recall, um, our second half of the story pertained to the reunion. And in this too, we have a question. What was Joseph thinking when he put his brothers through the ringer? Remember, I, I, we didn't read it inside, but I told you the story outside. Remember, Joseph, um, the brothers come to him, at the, they come to Egypt to buy food, and he says... He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he doesn't tell them, hey, reunion, welcome. It's good to see you. It's been a while. He doesn't say that. He accuses them of being spies. He gives them a hard time. He, he, he arrests one of them. He sends them back to, get, to send Benjamin. He, all of this puts them through the ringer, harasses them for a long time. The question is, what exactly was he trying to do? Was he trying to torture them? Was he trying to harm them? Was he trying to hurt them? Was he trying to get back at them for what they had done to him? They had harmed him, so he's now going to harm them. Now, that might make sense that he was trying to, you know, payback. Listen, payback is payback. You could think that maybe that's what Joseph was doing. But why can't we say that? Why can we not say that that's the motivation? You tell me. Why can't we say that Joseph was interested in payback? I'm going to give you a clue. What does Joseph say to his brothers after he confesses, after he reveals himself to him? Is my father still alive? What else? No, he, this is my favorite story. He tells them that he was sent, not sold. Excellent. Excellent, Adina Malka. And we've discussed this before many times, right? Us, uh, you and me. Joseph says to his brothers, don't feel bad. Don't be upset. You never hurt me. You never harmed me. You didn't even send me here. You didn't sell me as a slave. Maybe on the surface, yeah, but you didn't send me here. God sent me here on a mission 
to provide for you, which indicates, in simple terms, no hard feelings. He had a completely different perspective on the entire episode. It wasn't Joseph the victim. It was Joseph the shliach, Joseph the emissary. He never looked at himself as a victim of his brother's jealousy and hatred. Oh, I am a victim. He never played the victim card. Wherever he was, he's on a mission. In Potiphar's house, he's on a mission. He'll be successful. In prison, he's on a mission. With Pharaoh, he's on a mission. And when the brothers come, he tells them, don't be upset. I'm going to read for you. I'm not going to share the screen again, but I'll pull up the text. The text said, we read it in text two. He said to them, now do not be distressed. And it should not upset you that you sold me here. For as a source of livelihood, God has sent me before you. God sent me here to take care of you. Does that sound like a guy who hates his brothers? Does that sound like a guy who's trying to take revenge on his brothers? Does that sound like a guy who's still harboring a grudge? No way. No way. This sounds like a fellow who's totally at peace with what happened and has reframed it for the good. Hence my question, why didn't Joseph reveal himself as soon as the brothers came down to Egypt? Are you with me on my question? Why, if Joseph was totally cool and he was totally fine with what happened and he was comfortable with understanding that this was him on a mission to provide food in a time of famine for his own family, if that was his perspective, then when they came down the first time to buy food, why did he accuse them of being spies? Why did he arrest Simeon? Why did he ask for Benjamin? Why did he frame Benjamin by placing the goblet in his bag? Why did he then arrest and put Benjamin behind bars? Why? If he didn't harbor any negative feelings, if he wasn't trying to get back at them, what was the motivation? So in summary, and, and I want to, we asked, we've asked dozens of questions. To me, they boil down to two. I want to quickly restate them and then move into the real meat of the matter. Again, very quickly, the two core questions on the story of Joseph and his brothers are, number one, on the brothers, and number two, on Joseph. Number one, on the brothers, if they were really tzaddikim, if they were really righteous people, then what were they doing? How could they want to kill him and, and, and kidnap him and, and, her, and sell him as a slave, human trafficking? What were they thinking? And Joseph, if he really harbored no ill will against them, as he himself says, if we believe him, then why didn't, he tell, why didn't he tell them who he was right away? Why does he put them through the ringer for an extended amount of time? Those are the two core questions. All right, now with the questions behind us, we can progress into some understanding. All right, so the first thing I want to address is even before we get to the Kabbalah of, of the matter, I want to address the first question, which is how could the brothers who were righteous, how could they have come to a place where they wanted to kill their own brother, kill Joseph? There are three, amongst the, 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 the answers from our sages, these are classic commentaries, not yet Kabbalah, we're not, yet there, we're not there yet. Amongst the classic commentaries, we find three interesting explanations that I want to share with you tonight. So number one, or perspective. Perspective number one is the motivation or the, the drive of the brothers, what led them to that place. On a very basic level, our sages point out that the actions of Jacob and Joseph himself contributed to the brothers' hatred and jealousy 
and actions. And this is something that Mindy mentioned before. After all, their father, Jacob, gave Joseph a lot of love, a lot of attention, and even some extra clothing. And this is not a great idea when parenting. Right? So here we go. Let's take a look at text number, one second, at text number four. Here we go. Um, Take a look what the Talmud says. Jerry, please read this one. Text four, page 108. A person should never discriminate between his children. Look at what happened on account of two sellers' way to find spun wool that Jacob bestowed upon Joseph more than, more than his other children, provoking their jealousy and causing our forefathers to end up in Egypt. How, how just what, what beautiful language the Talmud uses, right? Two sellers' worth of fine spun wool, right? Two bucks of wool, and what happens? What happens is that that triggered the, the, the jealousy and the anger of the brothers against Joseph and ultimately ended up with the Jewish people in, in Egypt and the Egyptian exile. So clearly the Talmud is saying we're not meant to learn from this narrative about how to parent. We're meant to learn what not to do when parenting. So that's one approach. One approach says we alleviate the, the, the guilt from the brothers and say, why they do it? Because they were pushed into it. The father pushed them into it. Joseph pushed them into it by, by telling the, the, the dreams and provoking them. Again, themes that were mentioned before when I originally read um, the story. That's one approach where you shift the blame from the brothers to the father and to Joseph himself. A second perspective has it that the brothers acted in self-defense. Now, this is a very interesting approach. We know that in general, one is not allowed, to, well, not in general, it just, it, it, we're not allowed to take someone else's life. The exception is, when someone is trying to take your life. So if you're in mortal danger, not if you, if one is in mortal danger, then one is allowed to preemptively stop the danger from happening by taking out the assailant. And the truth is, it's not only if somebody is, is God forbid, going to be a victim, it's even a third party that's witnessing somebody chasing someone else. The, the, you're allowed to, the, person, the, the third party witness is allowed to step in and stop the assailant even up to the point of lethal force if necessary. So this second explanation, the second angle on the story, has it that the brothers felt that Joseph posed an existential threat to them. And that's why, and that's why Joseph, sorry, that's why the brothers went after Joseph. Take a look at this next text. We're actually going to do two texts back to back. And you'll see this theme running through it. All right, Sfarno, let's ask Ray. Ray, please read text number five, page 109. Please unmute and jump right in. You got it? Yes. Awesome. Sure. Um, They saw Joseph as one who was plotting to destroy them, physically or spiritually, or both together. And the Torah states... In the, Tal- in the Talmud Sanhedrin, one who is coming to kill you make haste to kill him first. Sfarno says they believed that their brother was going to kill them, either physically or spiritually, and so they acted preemptively. Now, you might be wondering, well, what was Joseph trying to do to them already? So I'm going to read text 6. This is from the Akedah Yitzchak. Take a look at this. 
Such a beautiful insight. I mean, a powerful insight. Text 6. When they saw that of all of his children, Jacob loved only Joseph, they thought that what will happen to them will be the same as what happened to Ishmael and the children of Keturah vis-a-vis Isaac and to Esau vis-a-vis Jacob. They believed that for as long as Joseph was alive, they would have no portion in the God of Israel and their descendants would be excluded from the blessing given to Abraham and Isaac to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. This belief was confirmed to them by the fact that they saw that until now, only one of the children of each of the patriarchs merited this blessing. Are you with me in this thought? This powerful thought? The Akedah Yitzchak says that the brothers made a very simple calculation. They said, look, starting from Abraham, the lineage, the spiritual heritage, the spiritual legacy of Abraham went to one son, not both sons, only one son, namely Isaac. And then Isaac passed it down to one son, not both sons. He only gave it to Jacob. Jacob, they reasoned, would also pass it down to one son if this continued the way it was continuing. If Joseph is going to continue to marginalize them, if Jacob continuously showers his love on this one child, then what's, all the signs are pointing one way, and that is they're going to get cut out. They're going to get cut off from this whole thing called Judaism. Are you with me on what, the, what their concern was? The Kedah Yitzchak said, says that the brothers literally thought that they would be excluded from the Jewish covenant. They thought they were on the out. They had to get rid of, they felt. They had to stop this right now and get rid of the person that was standing between them and their spiritual life, which to them was the same as physical life. They felt that Joseph posed an existential threat directly threatening them. And so they, they decided to take action. That's the second explanation. A third explanation. I'm not, we're not going to read it inside. I'll give you a third explanation. And by the way, you can probably tell, by the way I'm saying this, we're not going to be satisfied with any of these three, and which is why we're going to Kabbalah. But part of the process is to understand how it's usually understood and then what Kabbalah, what Jewish mystical thought, brings to the table to enhance our understanding. So third answer that's, that's some, that some give, and you can see it in your text, but I don't want to read it inside, is this notion of the king, of, of the, um, the, 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 the royalty, the malchut, the kingship. So who was supposed to be king? So we know that ultimately, and this was mentioned before, somebody mentioned it, that Judah was the king. Ultimately, Judah is the king, King David from the tribe of Judah. Well, they felt that with these dreams, Joseph was essentially trying to steal the throne away from Judah. They felt that Joseph was attempting, in a very passive-aggressive way, to stage a coup against Judah, who was supposed to be, they kind of knew by way of prophecy, or somehow they knew, they were from Judah, who was supposed to be the monarch, the king. And so they felt, you know, when it comes to um, high treason, when you're dealing with a king and the, and the charge of high treason, or the crime of high treason, that's a capital crime. You try to steal the throne from the king, that's it. You're done. So they felt Joseph is coming with dreams about being a king and we're all going to bow down to him, including Judah. You're out. That's it. You're done. You're trying to steal the throne. You're out. So these are three rationales that are given to explain the brothers' very, very harsh, seemingly evil actions. 
So if we say they're evil, then there's no question. But if we don't say they're evil and we're trying to understand the actions, so we have a few options that I presented. Either, number one, they were provoked so hard by their father and even their brother, they were pushed into a corner. Number two, they felt threatened physically and especially spiritually by Joseph, who they thought would be the only one to get the Abrahamic legacy, the Jewish legacy. And number three, they felt that Joseph was trying to steal the throne of Judah. Make sense so far? You with me on these three answers? All right, these are three approaches. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not 100% satisfied with them. And I imagine that you're also like, eh, maybe, but still, I don't know if that rises to the level of, you know, murder and, and conspiracy to kidnap and, and, and human traffic, you know. But nonetheless, these are answers that are given. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn to a more mystical approach. And when we do the mystical approach, remember, we, we strip the story away from its literal contours and we explain it on a conceptual level where Joseph is not Joseph. Joseph is a, is a, is a concept. And the brothers are not just brothers, but they represent something as well. And Jacob is not Jacob and, and, and his wives are not their wives. Every, everything represents a theme. And when we understand the themes, the story can come together. So this is, this is why the Kabbalah is so important, the soul of Judaism, the soul of Torah, because it provides such essential information and wisdom so as to make sense of stories that are otherwise inexplicable. So to get to the heart, the Kabbalistic heart of the story, which is why we're here tonight, we need to go a little bit back in time. You see, we're wondering what's going on with Joseph and his brothers. We need to go to the generation before. We need to speak about the parents. It's like uh, therapy, right? We're gonna blame the parents now for the drama that plays out with the kids. There's drama, Joseph and his brothers, they're not, there's the drama going on here. All right, we're gonna blame the parents. I, it, it, this is a perfect time to acknowledge my mother who joined us. Um, she was so, um, so I, I enjoyed having her when I broadcast the class last week from Pittsburgh where she lives and she enjoyed being there as well that she, uh, she wanted to join tonight. So, hey mom, it's good to see you. All right, so let's, let's continue. So we're going to understand the drama of Joseph and the brothers mystically by first examining the parents of the 12 tribes. So who were the parents? Well, Jacob was the father. We talked a lot about Jacob, but who, what about the mother? Well, as you know, spoiler alert, there, there, there are, there's more than one mother, mothers. And Mindy mentioned this before, and we're going to get, we're going to talk about this right now. So to understand the dynamic of the parents and that drama, which we'll see soon, we need to pick up the story of Jacob where we left off last week. Last week we talked about Jacob taking the blessings, stealing the blessings from his brother Esau. And then Esau is so upset that he wants to kill him. So his parents tell Jacob, Probably better if you move away for a little bit until your brother calms down. In the meantime, might as well get married. So go to the Mishpacha, go to um, Haran, and go find Laban, his uncle, and, and his mother says, my brother, the uncle, and, and go, go, find, uh, go find some Mishpacha, some extended family to marry. So that's what happens. To pick up the story from there, that's where we ended up last week. Let's pick it up this week to understand Joseph and his brothers. Let's understand 
the previous generation, Jacob and his wives. So Jacob travels to Haran. And there in Haran, he meets a young girl named Rachel. And he falls in love with Rachel. It is love at first sight. And he wants to marry her. But he, asks, he has to ask her hand in marriage. So he asks her father. Well, this is what happens next. Let's read this inside. This is text number seven. Uh, sorry, this is text number eight. Ah, oh, this is the story. I'm going to read this. Text eight. Rachel and Leah. Laban had two daughters. The, eld- the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. The eyes of Leah were tender, and Rachel was a beautiful form and beautiful appearance. So there are two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah older, Rachel younger. Jacob, as I mentioned a moment ago, loved Rachel. Love at first sight. And he said, I said to her dad, I will work for you, serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter, in order to marry her. Laban said, Classic Laban answer. Better I give her to you than I give her to another man. <laughs> Not like you're a great guy, but yeah, I guess you're better than, than, than the competition. All right, stay with me. In other words, deal. Jacob worked for Rachel for her hand in marriage. He worked seven years. And they were in his eyes as a few days in his love for her. It went by very fast. And Jacob said to Laban, bring here my wife as my days are fulfilled. And I will come to her. In other words, let's have, a, let's have a wedding. Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. It was in the evening. And he took his daughter Leah and he brought her into him and he came to her. It was in the morning and behold, she's Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Have I not served you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. All right. So essentially, just just in case the story is not clear, so Jacob states his intention to marry Rachel. They make a deal. I'll work for seven years. Then you'll agree to the marriage. The wedding day comes. It's at night. Somehow there's a veil and it's dark. And Jacob doesn't realize who he's marrying. And in the next morning, he realizes that Leah was substituted for Rachel. And now he's upset at Laban, at the father. And the father says, no, of course, the first, the older one is, uh, gets married first. And that's it. Then he says, okay, but I still want to marry Rachel. And so he says, work another seven years. Fine. So he ends up needing to work 14 years. And, but he marries Rachel as well. He came also to Rachel. And he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked with him yet another seven years. So in total, Jacob marries two sisters. He marries Leah. He marries Rachel. But what's interesting here, what do you notice about the way the Torah describes the relationship between Jacob and his two wives? What do you notice in this last paragraph about how the Torah describes the relationship? Jump in. Jump in. It's not a trick question. What what did you notice? How does Jacob relate to his wives? He loved Rachel more than Leah. How does that sound? Like Rivka loving Jacob more than Esau? Or like Jacob loving Joseph more than the brothers, Jacob right? loving Joseph. Right? I mean, it seems like, what's going, like, she can't get this right. He, he wants to marry Rachel. 
He ends up marrying Leah. He then marries Rachel, ultimately. The father basically Laban got him to work 14 years instead of seven, so that was just a straight-up um, you know, uh, business move on his part. But in truth, Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. That's what the Torah says. The Torah tells us straight up. You should know that what this means is that Rachel was always the girl of his dreams. He fell in love with her. He wanted to marry her. When he's duped into marrying Leah, all right, they're married, but who does he really love? He really loves Rachel. And then, we don't have it in our text, but then the Torah continues with a discussion about the children, about their offspring. And the Torah says that Rachel could not get pregnant, but Leah, Rachel, the girl of his dreams, can't get pregnant. But Leah, the girl that he was tricked into marrying, she has kids. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. She has kids. Well, at this point, Rachel says, this is not good, right? I need to have offspring with my husband. So she gets her, her handmaid and gives her to her husband, to Jacob, and they have two children. And then Leah gives her handmaid, there's another two sons born, and then Leah herself gets pregnant another three times and has two sons and a daughter. At this point, there are ten sons, if you've, do, if you've done the math. Leah has four sons and a daughter, and the two handmaids have a total of four. So that's six, sorry, six and plus four is ten. Ten sons and one daughter. And finally, finally, after all of those births, finally, Rachel is blessed. Rachel becomes pregnant, and she has a child, and she names him Joseph. This is the story of the parents. Oh, and then she has, eight years later, she has Benjamin. Rachel has Benjamin, and in, in childbirth, Rachel dies. And those are the 12 sons. Well, this is the story of the parents, and it tr sheds tremendous light on the drama of the children, of the sibling rivalry. I mean, I'll ask you the question, right? Based on the backdrop, based on the, the sorry, the backstory that we just read, why do you think that Jacob loved Joseph so much? Why do you think he gave Joseph a special coat? Why the favoritism for Joseph, based on what we just explained? Somebody spell it out for me. Because he was the firstborn son of the woman he truly loved. That's it. From the beginning, he wanted to marry Rachel. There was a conspiracy. He ended up marrying Leah, but he wanted to marry Rachel. And he couldn't have children with her until finally he did. And who's the firstborn of his beloved wife, Rachel? Joseph. So who does he love of his kids? Joseph. And who does he give the coat to? You guessed it. Joseph. Does this make sense? You can also understand now, not only the love of Jacob, but the fierce jealousy and hatred of the brothers. Because what are they thinking? It's not just, should I spell it out? It's not just that our father doesn't love us as much as Joseph. He never loved our mother. mother. He never loved her. He never wanted to marry her. He's never looked at us like his real kids. You understand how deep that is? Think about how deep that is. This is not just sibling rivalry. 
This is not like, oh, you got the coat, I wanted the coat. That's petty stuff. This is multi-generational tension. This is going back to that original meeting at the well, Jacob and Rachel's eyes lock, and that's it. Jacob knows this is the one until he's duped. And then he goes along with it. I mean, what are you going to do? What, he should throw her? He should, he should, get, he should divorce her? So he, he, he remains married. He's, try, he's being a mensch. But he can't help his feelings. He loves Rachel. This creates a rift. This creates conflict. And it expresses itself in a manifest way, in a powerful way, in the next generation. Where he's favoring Joseph, the Bechar, the eldest, the firstborn of his beloved Rachel. And the others feel like they are so second rate, it kills them. Are you with me on this? Does it make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay, Jerry, go ahead. Two questions. One of them is, how does Benjamin manage to throw his lot in with his brothers, with his half-brothers, as opposed to his brother, and not get, uh, not suffer the same fate that, that, uh, that Joseph suffers? And the second question is, Abraham had two wives and sons by both wives and sent one wife and one son away. Why did Jacob not do the same thing with Leah? Excellent question. Excellent question. So to answer the second question first, so with, with Abraham, it was a wife and not, she was the handmaid of, 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 Sarah, of Sarah. So wasn't exactly a wife that he married. It was like a, another type of arrangement specifically to have a child. So that's, that explains why there was more of an inclination to do that. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that was where there was more of an inclination. And that came from Sarah. Um, in this case, he married, legally married Leah, even though he wasn't necessarily aware of it. But that's, that was the, that's what happened under the chuppah. So he, he, he decided to stick with it. As to your question, how does Benjamin skate under the radar? Well, Benjamin was really young when the sale of Joseph happened. Remember, he's eight years younger, which means that at the time that they kidnapped and sold Joseph as a slave, he would have only been nine years old. And he would not have been yet the target of, or he was not the target of, in a good way of, or depending who you ask, of, of Jacob's uh, strong affections. That was the oldest son of his beloved Rachel. So he was... Not so favored, not so um, spoiled, so to speak, and he was, um, and he was at the same time um, a little younger. So, so I don't know if he threw his lot in with the brothers necessarily, but at least he was not not as uh, much of a lightning rod and the source of the of, of this kind of deep seated jealousy, if you will, um, as Joseph of the brothers as Joseph was. All right, so let, let's let's explain let's let's explain what we're up to. Oh, yeah, Morris, go ahead. What, what was the relationship away on Rachel? I mean, we don't, find much, we don't find much dialogue between them. There's one time where we find that there's a little bit of friction where they speak a little harshly to each other. So it seems like it certainly wasn't easy. And from this, by the way, we learn in Jewish law that one, after, after this story, that in Jewish law, one is not allowed to marry two sisters because it is, even though biblically, 
theoretically, one is allow, allowed to have multiple wives. Again, theoretically, it was never really practiced much. In this case, it was by deception, etc. Um, but even in the case, and, and rabbinically, it's prohibited nowadays, so no one get any you know, ideas. But um, even biblically, it's prohibited after this, after Sinai, from, from marrying two sisters because of the strain that we would put on the relationship. So uh, the short answer is, it seems like there was a strain to the relationship because, because of this. Um, okay. So we've explained now the history behind the family feud, right? In short, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and this spilled over into the way the kids felt about each other. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the background. Um, but here's my question. Does this really make sense? I mean, does that actually make sense? Can we imagine that Jacob, who was a tzaddik, um, really loved one girl over the other? Was he driven by physical attraction? Or he couldn't get over you know, the girl that caught his eye, the girl of his dreams? Is that really what it was all about? And, 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 and to the point that he marginalized Leah? How could a... What, forget a tzaddik. Forget a righteous person. What about a mensch? So he loves her more than the other. I mean, yes, humans are humans and whatever, but something doesn't feel right about this. It sounds like we're really reducing Jacob to someone who just wasn't nice or wasn't as nice to one wife and to her kids, and that caused this entire thing to explode. It seems very, a little too simplistic, especially when talking about somebody like Jacob, it just doesn't feel right spiritually, which is why we need to move to the Kabbalah. Now we move to the Kabbalah. And here's the big idea. And this is the idea that's going to blow your mind, hopefully. And that is that the story of Jacob's marriage to Rachel and Leah is directly connected to the story of Jacob stealing the blessings. I'm going to say that again. The story of Jacob's marriage to the two sisters first Leah, then Rachel, is directly connected thematically to the theft of the blessings that we spoke about in the last class. Which means now, just take a half a step back or a step back, I'm linking three stories. Are you with me, what I did here? Linking three stories. We started off with the story of Joseph and his brothers, and we said that that conflict is related to the conflict between Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. And now I'm saying that that conflict is related to the theft of the blessings. Are you with me? Three stories that are all interconnected. But let me first draw the connection between the stolen blessings and the marriage to Rachel and Leah. It's an easy connection. I'm sure you can make it. Somebody made it before. Yeah? How, how does uh, Jacob get the blessings? How did he steal the blessings? Help me out here. He deceived Isaac. What did he pretend to be? He pretended to be a sibling. I'm going to say that again. He pretended to be a sibling. How did he end up marrying Leah? Because she pretended to be a sibling. The sibling. Jacob was encouraged by his mom. Hold on, hold on, hold on. One second, one second. That, don't, we can't get another generation involved in this. Let's keep it. Let's, you're right, but let's keep it here for a second. Understand this. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm drawing now strings, thematic connections between the deception, sorry, the story of the, bless, the stolen blessings and the story of the marriage of the two sisters. So connection number one is vis-a-vis -vis deception. There's deception in both stories. 
Jacob is taking the blessing of his brother, and Leah is taking the husband of her sister. Are you with me on this? To the point, to the extent, this will shock you. Guaranteed it's going to shock you, unless you've already read it, in which case, maybe it'll shock you again. Take a look at this. Text number nine from the Medrash. All that night, they must not have had lights. All that night, Jacob was calling to her, Rachel, and she was responding in kind. Then in the morning, poof, she was Leah. Said Jacob to her, deceiveress, the daughter of a deceiver. Was I not calling you Rachel and you were, and you were answering me? She said to him, every teacher has his pupils. When your father was calling you Esau, did you not answer him in the same way? Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Jacob calls her out. You fooled me. You tricked me. How could you answer, Rachel, when you were Leah? And she says, hey, didn't you do the same thing? Didn't you do the same exact thing when your father was calling you Esau? And you said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> every teacher, every pupil has his teacher or her teacher. That's, that's uh, yeah, that's sharp. Rabbi. Yes, Ray. Um, didn't Rachel give Leah some signal, some signal that Jacob knew to look for? Let's leave, there is, yes, there is a, a, a commentary and a, a medrash to that effect, but let's leave that point out so that we can, we can solidify this point without getting, without getting too distracted. So here's the point. There's a commonality of deception in both cases. So Jacob deceives his father to take his brother's blessings. Leah deceives, with help, without help, whatever, J Leah deceives Jacob to marry her sister's husband. So in both cases, a sibling is pretending to be the other sibling, right? Oh, how did Leah know? Excellent. So Rose is asking the question, how did Leah know about Jacob's deception? Was it on the front page of the New York Times? I don't know. I don't know, but apparently word traveled through the family. Apparently the word got through. So she knew somehow that Jacob had stolen the blessing. So she says, I'm the deceiveress. You're the deceiver also, so you've met your match, Mazel Tov. So that's one connection. Next connection, I wanna, again, I want to intertwine these two stories. The next connection is vis-a-vis, -vis, give me a second here. The next connection is vis-a-vis -vis the actual wives, Leah and Rachel. There's a powerful teaching that tells us that Leah and Rachel were actually designated for Esau. And Jacob, respectively, I'm going to share my screen with you once again. I'm going to read these texts now, just in the interest of, um, of time. It's a little bit smoother if I read and then quickly comment on it. So take a look. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We've got to do one more text before we get to Leah and Rachel. One more text about deception. Text 10. This is an unbelievable commentary. A comment. Laban was taunting Jacob. By saying to him, it is not done so in our place. Remember what he said to him the next day when Jacob had a complaint? He said, we don't give the younger before the firstborn. Laban was implying in your place, the younger child is magically made into the firstborn as you acted when you appropriated Esau's birthright. But in our place, the firstborn's rights won't be taken from the elder sister and given to the younger. Wow, another burn. From this time, from Laban, from 
the dad. So the dad says, you took your brother's place, the firstborn. My daughter, my younger daughter, is not going to take the place of the older daughter. She's going to get married first. All right. Now, with regard to the, you with me on that? Yeah. Okay. Now, with regard to the actual, oh, uh, no, we're skipping text 11. Okay. Let's go text 12. The connection between Leah and Rachel and Esau and Jacob. Take a look. Leah heard people talking. Leah, remember, the, younger sis the older sister heard people talking. Rebecca has two sons, and Laban has two daughters. So people were saying the elder will marry the elder, and the younger will marry the younger, which means that she would be slated to marry Esau, who was not a good guy. So she would sit at the cross. Oh, I'm sorry. She didn't know yet who how he was. So she would sit at the crossroads and inquire, how does the elder son conduct himself? He is a wicked man, a highway robber. How does the younger son conduct himself? A wholesome man dwelling in tents. So she wept until her eyelashes fell out. That's why it says she had tender eyes because she was living all of her days in weeping. She was crying, crying, crying because there was this kind of rumor or whatever, this prophecy sort of that the elder would marry the elder, the younger would marry the younger. She was slated for Esau. So what that tells us is, again, that somehow there's a thematic connection between the story of Esau and Jacob and the blessings and Jacob marrying the two sisters. So what this tells us is that, again, the three stories are intertwined. The story starting from the top down, the first story starting from the earliest story to the, lat to, the, to the later story. So we have the story of Jacob and Esau and the blessings. It's connected with the story of Jacob's marriage to, Le to Leah and Rachel, which is connected with the drama of Joseph and his brothers. And by the way, you have all the information. We presented all the information to answer all the questions, but we have to put the puzzle pieces together, which is what I'm going to do right now. In, to, in order to understand this, we have to recall what we discussed last week about Jacob and Esau. And don't worry if you don't remember, I'm going to remind you um, what we discussed last week about Jacob and Esau. You see, typically, we underst typically the understanding is, well, Jacob was the good guy and Esau was the bad guy. I and mean, we just read it in text 12, right? One guy's a highway robber and the other guy's um, a righteous person studying Torah, dwelling in a tent. But that's not the way Kabbalah understands Jacob and Esau. Kabbalah understands Tohu and Tikkun, right? Two spiritual realities. Let me put it in, in very practical terminology so that we can put all the pieces together. Jacob represents the persona that we would call the tzaddik, righteous person who's involved in good things and is continuing to do more and more good things. Esau represents the Baal Teshuvah, which in this context means the person who confronts the evils of the world and transforms them to good. This is not me telling you how Esau lived his life. That's not how he lived his life. But his destiny, his persona, his potential was somebody who would walk in the field, encounter the darkness, wrestle with it, and convert it to light. Whereas Jacob was meant to stay in the tent and wrapped in the light. These are two different personas. The person who is cloistered away, spiritual, in a spiritual environment, studying uh, Torah in Kolel, studying in Yeshiva all day, protected with high walls against the, quote, big bad world. That's the Jacob persona. And then there are those who walk in the fields, who go to work on Wall Street, or maybe Rodeo Drive, or maybe somewhere in between, 
or all of the above. And this is the person who encounters the darkness, encounters materialism, and their spiritual task is to transform the material of the world to the spiritual, to transform the darkness to light, to flip it for good. These are the Esau's in potential, not how he lived his life, but in potential. So you have the individual, the persona, who's spiritually pure and, 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 and un kept away from the challenge. And then you have the person who's thrown into the challenge. And the world needs both personas. In the literal story of Jacob and Esau, the problem was not that Esau was in the field, but that Esau, instead of trapping the animals, got trapped by the animals. Instead of trapping, converting, and flipping materialism to spirituality and darkness to light, he took his light and dropped it inside the physical. He lost his light within the darkness of materialism. He got caught up in the temptation and was sunk by it instead of flipping it. And so therefore we explained last week that Jacob had to take that blessing too. This created a paradigm shift within Jacob. No longer was he permitted to only fulfill the role of the perfect sequestered tzaddik. He now was also granted the responsibility to conquer the materialism of the world. Are you with me, what I'm saying here? Does this make sense? Again, initially, there were two separate individuals, two separate experiences, two separate lives, two separate spiritual paths. One, to indulge in spirituality. One, to wrestle with materialism and flip it for good. But Esau wasn't pulling his own weight. He wasn't doing the job. He wasn't flipping anything. He wasn't converting darkness to light. He was snuffing out the light with the darkness. And his mother knew this. This is what we explained last week. And therefore, she made sure that he, Jacob, got the blessings. But now that gives him a second hat to wear. Not only is he wearing the hat of the Kolel student, of the person who studies all day, he now needs to wear the hat of the businessman. He has to dress up in the clothing of Esau, I said last week at the end of the class. Remember this? So now Jacob assumes both roles. And that's his calling. And he heads to Charon. He heads out of the sequestered place of his father's home. He heads out into the big bad world, the world of the Labans, because he just got the second blessing, the blessing that had been intended for Esau to go into the world and transform it. So now he has to go into the world. And who does he meet? He meets Rachel. And in Kabbalah, I need to fill in some information. One more piece. Rachel is the persona of the tzaddik and Leah is the persona of the Baal Teshuvah. Rachel is the one also who is perfect, spiritual, perfectly spiritual. And the Leah is the one who wrestles with materialism and flips it for good. So he meets Rachel and he falls in love with Rachel. You know why? Because at his core, what's his, real, what's his original persona? The tzaddik. When he sees Rachel, he falls in love with her. And when he sees Leah, he doesn't fall in love with her. 
Remember, Leah was, was, was meant to marry Isa, right? Because they both shared the same personality trait about flipping darkness to light, converting darkness to light. And Rachel and, and Jacob were meant to be together. Tzaddik. But now Jacob had taken the role of Esau. So now Jacob had to marry both. Are you with me on what I'm saying? Is this all making sense? Jacob had to marry both wives because Jacob had now taken both jobs. I'm not talking only about the literal people. I'm talking about the concepts. Are you with me on the concepts on a conceptual level? Remember, Jacob begins with one persona. He gains a secondary persona. And now he has a dual mission in life. He has to be both the pure, sequestered tzaddik and the earthly, practical, down-to-earth spiritual warrior. He has to be both. So he has to marry both. He, has, he marries both missions. The mission of Leah, which is the spiritual warrior, and the mission of Rachel, which is the pure, pure tzaddik. But who does he really love? Which mission does he really embrace? Which mission was his original mission, his OG mission? His original mission from the beginning, before he was forced by his mother to take the second mission. He loves sitting in the tent and studying. He loves putting up the walls, putting on the sound counts, uh, the, the sound canceling earphones, and studying Torah all day and not worrying about the darkness. That's what he loves. Who does he love? Which mission? Which wife does he love? Which path? He loves the Rachel more than the Leah. The Leah he has to, but the Rachel he wants to. The Leah he was told by his mother, you have to. Your brother dropped the ball. There's no one else to pick it up. You have to do it. So he has to take the blessing. He has to marry Leah, but he really loves Rachel. He really loves that mission. That's his real persona. He wants to be in yeshiva all day, but he has to go to work also and make a difference there as well. Are you with me in this so far? Yes. Let's continue. Where, who does he have more kids with? Leah. Because in our lives, in our lives, even if we're trying to balance both, where do most of us spend most of our time? In the tents of Torah or in the fields of material, the material world? The answer is in the fields. Jacob, Jacob has, sets his tent, so to speak, has more children with Leah because in life, most of our activities are in the world, are battling the darkness. Yes, we're able to escape a little in the morning, a little in the evening, to Torah study like we're doing right now and forget the whole world and just focus on something pure and holy and a connection like that. And that's breathtaking and it's beautiful. But most of the activity, most of the children are with Leah. But who does he love? He loves Rachel. You understand what's going on here with the, with the duality? He needs to marry Leah. He wants to marry Rachel. Most of the time with Leah, so to speak, most children. But his heart is with Rachel. And it continues with the next generation. The other brothers represent Leah and Joseph and Benjamin. But Joseph represents Rachel. So who does he love? He loves Joseph. Because again, that's who he is by nature. Well, what are you going to do? It's his nature. That's how he was born. He was the guy that would have loved nothing more than to never step out into the world, but to remain a Torah scholar, prayer, study, and that's it. But what are you going to do? He's thrust out into the world. Now he has to, now he has to conquer the world also. So he has to take the blessings. He has to go to Haran. He has to marry Leah. 
and he has other children. But who does he love? He loves his original role. He loves Rachel, and he loves Joseph. This creates tension, Mark, one second, because I have to wrap this up due to time, and then we can take questions afterwards. This explains the tension on a completely spiritual level. I told you, we have to talk about this in concept, and then we're going to bring it back. This explains the tension that is inherent and really will always be. It's never going to go away between Joseph and the brothers, between Rachel and Leah, between Jacob 1 and Jacob 2, Jacob pre and Jacob post getting the blessings. There's going to be an inherent tension there because either we're in or we're out, and if we have to be both, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's very complicated because it's so nice to not have to deal with this stuff. But then you have to deal with this stuff. Some people love dealing with this stuff, and they don't like being inside the tent. And there's a tension. There's a tension, especially when it seems like the desired place, the beloved place, is inside the tent. And that can create a rift. That can create a rivalry between these two elements. So what happens? Joseph gets it. Joseph understands it. Joseph realizes that he represents only one of the paths, but that ultimately human beings need both. Jacob himself needed both roles, both missions, which is why he took the blessing. Joseph realizes this, but he also realizes that his brothers didn't realize this. Now, did Joseph always realize this? I don't know, but Joseph in the story as viceroy, he knew this, which is why he put his brothers through the ringer so that they would, so that they would reveal that they finally got it, and they did. Let me explain. Benjamin. Who was Benjamin? Benjamin was the other son of Rachel, and Benjamin was the other tzaddik persona of the sons. He was the only other one born to Rachel, representing the tzaddik, the pure, sweet, serenity, sweet, sweet, serene spirituality persona. That was Benjamin. And the other brother said, ah, we got to get rid of Joseph, got to get rid of that and in, indulge in our efforts to change the world on the ground to transform, to be spiritual warriors. We don't like this sequester business. We got to be out there in the world. So they got rid of Joseph. So Joseph orchestrated things to give them a chance to also get rid of Benjamin. First thing he did was bring Benjamin. I'm not telling you why. Bring Benjamin. And they brought Benjamin eventually after some maneuvering by Joseph keeping Simeon until they brought Benjamin. But they brought Benjamin. And then he held Benjamin, framed him, and held him. And then he basically put the brothers to a test. Are you ready to just walk away? from the last vestige of Rachel. Rachel is dead. She's passed on. Joseph, they believe, is gone. And now Benjamin is being held by the viceroy of Egypt. Will you walk away? Will you walk away and abandon the twin role in life? The studious, kolel, studying, isolation type, <laughs> isolation chamber spirituality. Will you abandon that? And the brother said, no. Judah said, no, we'll fight for him. And Joseph says, now you got it. And now I can reveal myself to you. Because now we can embrace both missions. Are you with me on this? Yes? Does that make sense? Sort of. Joseph essentially, Joseph essentially orchestrated things to put them in the same position that they had been 22 years earlier to get rid of Benjamin. This time they chose not to get rid of Benjamin. They chose to fight for Benjamin. Judah says, we're not leaving without Benjamin, which means on a spiritual level, they said, we believe in and we will fight for the dual mission in life and not for a single hat in life, not for a single mission. And ever since, 
this kind of confirmed the blessings that Jacob received. Jacob received blessings begrudgingly. He married Leah begrudgingly, but the brothers willingly fought for Benjamin. And this is the first time (coughs) that willingly one party chose the dual mission. The brothers chose to embrace the mission of Benjamin. And ever since, it's our mission to have both. Throughout, throughout history, Jewish history, there's been tension between these two missions and personas. There's been tension between <coughs> those that have secluded themselves in the four walls of Torah and prayer and those who go out there in the world. And all too often, all too often, this becomes a, a, a fierce source of contention. I would say that today, it's, it's, over the last 3,400 years, it's been a constant source of tension. This um, Jacob, Esau, pre-post-blessing, Leah, Rachel, brothers, Joseph. It's the same, it's the same struggle. And it's, it's gone on for the last 3,400 years. And it's the greatest source of contention within the Jewish community today. It's the greatest source of fragmentation between those who say that the only answer is seclusion, putting up the ghetto walls and isolating ourselves away from the trafe world the non-kosher world, and those who say, no, you have to be modern, you have to be out there in the world, you have to be a mensch, you have to be a person who's part of the world. This is what we would call tradition versus modernity. This is the great struggle of all time, tradition versus modernity. But now you know, now you know, now we know, that there need not be a struggle, although there is some tension There need not be a struggle because indeed we're meant to embrace both. We're meant to embrace tradition and we're we're meant to embrace modernity. What I mean by that is we're meant to embrace tradition. In our lives, we need moments in which we are isolated away from the craziness of the world, in which we are focused exclusively on Torah study and prayer and connection, spiritual activities and spiritual deepening. We need those moments. At the same time, we have to be out there in the modern world. And we have to work and we have to engage and we have to be out there, not for the sake of the work and all that stuff. No, for the sake of transforming the world into a holy space. We need both. We need to be traditional. We also need to be (coughs) modern at the same time. This is the great tension. This caused the great tension between Jacob and himself, once he got the blessings, between Leah and Rachel, and between Joseph and his brothers. In the final analysis, both Joseph and his brothers were right. Just like Jacob and Esau in their sources are holy, and just like both Leah and Rachel are matriarchs of our people, the problem is when we fail to see the other as not being holy, as only us containing the truth and not seeing the truth that lies in someone else. The story of Joseph and his brothers remind us of the importance of being open and being willing to respect the divine path of the other. So the one who's studying in Kolel, the one who's not getting a job, we have to respect the Joseph. And the one who's out there in the world very involved wearing the suits of Esau all day, seemingly all day, we have to respect that path as well as someone who is uniquely suited, both literally and figuratively, 
to transform the world on its terms. And the best is when we marry the two. But we cannot marry the two, the inspiration of the Josephs with the impact of the brothers. We cannot marry the two if we don't respect each other. Does what I'm saying make sense? Understand what I'm saying? And so this is the great challenge of our times and really of all times. And it's a call to action for both you and I. Ideally, we walk both paths. We have to set times for study and serenity and spiritual indulgence. And we also must venture out into the cold, dark material world of action to light it up. We are the Josephs and we are the brothers. And if we lean one way or the other, let us try to stretch the other way. and Let us at least respect the other who leans toward the other direction. And when we heal our inner dichotomy and we're able to truly embrace both roles that become the roles of the Jewish people. We are both Josephs and we are both the brothers. We are both Rachels and we are both Leahs. We are both Jacob and Jacob assuming the blessing of Esau. When we embrace that and heal our inner dichotomy, we will heal the dichotomy of the, of the, the, the macrocosm and in doing so, bring ultimate healing to the world. May it be speedily in our days and let us say, Amen. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for what I consider to be a, an absolutely breathtaking look at the drama between Joseph and his brothers. We explain that based on multiple layers of stories, intertwining it with the story and the drama and the tension of Jewish history, even into our modern times. And I think there's also a practical takeaway, which is let's have both and let's respect both. All right. Hope it made sense. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm here to answer questions, to engage in conversation. But first, let me, exp let me just quickly tease next week's class. Next week's class is entitled, The Broken Tablets. And it might be, it's one of the most common questions that I get on Torah, which is, how could the Jews, having just received the Torah at, at Mount Sinai, having just heard God say, I am the Lord your God, do not have any other gods, how could they dance the Horah around the golden calf? How could they, it's mind-boggling, how could they have done such a thing? Were the people simply out of control? Did God not communicate properly? So next week we learn the Kabbalah of the calf, the Kabbalah of the golden calf. We'll encounter the meaning of miracles, divine communication, human interpretation, heartbreak, shattered dreams and hopes, and finally piece together the broken pieces of the tablets. You don't want to miss the same bad time, same bad channel. All right. That's it for the lesson. And now, comments and questions and clarifications. I'm here, and I'm not going anywhere for the next little bit. All right. Take it away. Thanks for joining. For those that have to bounce, otherwise, jump in. So I have a question of clarification. Yes. You said that there were six sons by Leah, two by Leah's handmaids, two by Rachel's Rachel. handmaid, and two by Rachel. Correct. And that's where the 12 tribes come from. Correct. So what really makes them the 12 tribes is Jacob was their father. Correct. Because it sounds like he didn't marry four of those guys' mamas. Only married two of them. Correct. Okay. All right. Thank you. But wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I want to clarify on top of that and add more clarity. I was thinking it, but I didn't have time to like put the brakes on and, and explain this before. So let me explain it now. <laughs> it's a great opportunity. When we say that the, um, the, the two sides are Joseph and Benjamin, 
representing Rachel and that energy, versus the other 10, one could ask, there weren't 10. There was 6, 2, 2, and 2. So what's this 10 versus 2 business? So in Kabbalah, it doesn't get so granular. It just says there's Rachel and her two kids and everyone else. And everyone else represented the down-to-earth, entrusted to make a difference on this world, to be out there, to have a job. I don't mean like literally have a job, but I mean to be out there, to, to get out into the world. That was their task. And Joseph was the spiritualist. That was his, that was his role. And so even though it's not exactly 10 and 2, it's 6, 2, 2, and 2. Nonetheless, that's how it's grouped in Kabbalah. Hope that makes sense. Mark. Yeah, I've actually got two questions. The first one, the Torah says that Jacob loved Joseph. Because, but the Torah says because he was born while he was old. Not that because uh, he was, the, he was uh, the firstborn of Rachel. Right. Because he was born simply because he was born when he was old. Um, so aren't we kind of reaching on this? Is that guess what I'm saying? So look, it, everything that I'm telling you now, first of all, it's not, it's not my interpretation. This is from classic interpretations explained by classic Kabbalah. So number one, it's very well founded in the sources. Number one, it's not, there's no fringe concepts here. It's all very, very well-rooted um, in, in, in understanding on a, on a literal level the drama of, of the brothers and then on a spiritual level the drama. Um, as to your question, why does it say because he was a ben zikunim, he was a child of old age, one could understand that, that he was the child of this, he was the child that was born in his old age to his beloved Rachel, who he was trying to have children with for a long time and finally was able to have a child with so it's the emphasis not necessarily, although it mentions Ben Zukunim, that he was the child of his old age, the, the understanding could be that it's a euphemism, or not a euphemism, but it's a reference to Rachel, to the mother, who only gave birth in, uh, in, in the last of, you know, toward, in a, at a later time. So that's, that's on, a, on, a, on a simple level. Well, the, okay, well, that was my first question. But my second is, didn't you teach us that the pit which Joseph was thrown into, was filled with poisonous snakes and scorpions. And I guess my question is, you know, you can't live if you're bitten by a poisonous snake or a scorpion, uh, at least not the snakes they have out there in that part of the world. Did Joseph die and was reborn as, as a Sadiq? So Joseph did not die. What the, the understanding is, and this is brought down in the commentaries, is that the brothers actually were giving Joseph a test because it says in the good books that an animal or a creature does not attack a human being that has the tselem elokim, that has the image of God upon them. So if the human, and now every human being is created in the image of God. The question is, are we reflecting that at that moment or at any given moment? So the mo when, when at the time that a person is reflecting that image of God, the animal will not, that's what it says, don't try this at home, right? But it says that the, the animal, the, the dangerous animal or creature will not attack. So in this context, they were saying, if, if Joseph is really a tzaddik, if he's really righteous, he'll be fine. So they weren't, gonna, they weren't gonna kill him directly, they were gonna let the animals, if Joseph was not worthy, they would let the animals do their thing. That was their, that was their plan. So yeah, they, naturally he would have died, but he had that spiritual protection, and he didn't die, and he was ultimately spared. 
Thanks. Sure. Questions, clarifications, comments? Anastasia, go ahead. Yeah, one clarification. Sure. What happened to Isa? Did he die? Why he still could not marry uh, Leah? Um, uh, Isa, the older brother? Be because he no longer had that mission. Again, spiritually, he lost, he was so sunk. I'll give you an example. And I, I, it's kind of like an example that I gave in the first class. Imagine you send somebody behind enemy lines to be a spy. And, but they're working for you, right? But their job is to go behind enemy lines. Esau, Esau's role was to go behind enemy lines and bring back intelligence. I don't mean literally, but I mean go into the world and utilize it for something positive. But he failed. Instead of maintaining his status as a, as a hero, he, he flipped to the other side. He went to, he, he, he double-crossed, or so to speak. He, he got sunk into materialism. He was faced with a challenge, and he did not overcome the challenge. So he lost his opportunity to marry Leah, who was all about the positive element of it. Leah represents the, the, the transformation of the darkness to light. Esau wasn't doing it. Esau wasn't doing it. And so Jacob took that blessing and the... And, 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 the, and, the, um, and, and the wife or the woman that was also corresponding, the energy that was corresponding to that service. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So basically, he, he, he lost, what, at that, when, when the blessings were taken from him, he lost the opportunity to try it again. Essentially, the, the mother decided and the father went along, well, either knowingly or not went along with it. They gave the blessing of the dew of the heavens and the fat of the earth, not to, not, to the, not to Esau, but to Jacob. Jacob is also now going to be the one to put on the suit and go to work. He's going to be the Torah scholar, and he's going to be the businessman all rolled into one persona. Originally, it was supposed to be two different people. There's the Torah scholar and the businessman, the righteous businessman. But the businessman wasn't righteous anymore, so, they had a, so the blessing of the business was also given to the scholar. And that's how he assumes both roles. But he never fully embraced the role of the businessman. He always had his heart set on the scholar. And that reflected in how he looked at the, the wives, which again represent the missions, and how he looked at his kids, which again represent the missions. And ultimately there's healing. In Egypt, when jo Joseph and his brothers finally embrace, after 22 years, after giving his brothers the opportunity to once again create the divide between the two missions. But they say, no, we're not leaving without Benjamin, meaning we understand that there needs to be both and both have to work together. We need the scholar and we need the businessman and we need them to work together. When they said that, Joseph finally embraced them and that created healing. But it didn't create healing for all time. As I said, we, we still face this fracture. In, in communities today, around the world, it's still the same, it's still the same tension. Between those that are involved in Torah study constantly, and those that are not, and not even so obviously, but even just tradition versus modernity. How do we balance those two? It's a tension. And we have to embrace both. We have to figure out a way to embrace both. Um, all right, good. More questions, comments? Questions, comments? Okay, so let me ask you a question. Did the class... 
Did, did it make sense? The connections were clear? Yes? Ish? Rabbi, Mindy asked a question in the chat. Oh, I did not see it. Thank you very much. How did Leah know about Jacob's deception? I think we talked about that. Did we talk? How did Leah know about Jacob's deception? Oh, yeah. I mentioned that somehow, <laughs> somehow it leaked. Is this why Jacob didn't protest more? Mark said yes when he married Leah because ultimately he knew that he took Jacob's blessing. Sorry. Jacob knew that he took Esau's blessing and, and role. So now he has a dual role. So it makes sense that he's marrying both. Because again, we're not just talking about two sisters. We're talking about two, perp, two avodot, two services in life. And he married both missions, so he married both women, which represent the missions. Did Isa ever marry? The answer is yes. Do we know who his wife was? Yes. Was she ever mentioned? Yes. Basmas. Bas Yishmael. He married the daughter of Ishmael. He actually had many wives. He had many, many wives. And yeah, yeah, it's all connected. He had many wives, and when he saw that his parents sent Jacob away to get a wife from the mishpacha, from the family, that's when he married the daughter of Ishmael, who was also from the family, ultimately, mishpacha. But originally, he married Canaanite women and all sorts of things, plus we know that part of the, and I've said this before in previous classes, that part of the meaning of he was a hunter and a trapper is that he would trap and hunt married women and he would assault them, etc. So he was all sorts of things and um, he was not, not a great guy. Was he formally married also that multiple times? And the Torah tells us about this um, basmas, bas yishmal, basmas. Basmat bat Yishmael, the daughter of Ishmael, Basmas or Basmat. Um, she's actually given two different names in scripture. And Rashi has a comment on it that um, one was her real name and the other one represents her nickname, which spoke about her piety. She was a good person. Even whatever. There's an interesting discussion. The Rebbe has some interesting comments about it. Um, anyway, but yeah, so he did get married and that's that's the... And he had children. I think there were 12 princes that were, um, that were his, his kids also. All right. Good, good. All right. Great to see everybody. Thanks for joining. And um, hi, Mom. Good to see you. So um, I guess that's it. So we'll see you next week and before next week. Stay tuned for more excitement and exciting announcements about upcoming stuff which will be revealed in the next few days. We've got some really cool things coming up. So, um, is that Robbie? Hey, buddy. How's it? I love, I love the dinosaur PJs. I'm just saying. He's waiting for me to put it. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll let you guys go. All right. I don't want to, I always like to be the last to leave. All right, no worries. Robbie, Thank we'll you. see you later, my friend. Good night. What, how old are you now, buddy? Nine. Wow. That's wild. All right. One of your children, I think. Yeah, Shia. I think they're the same age. Yeah, Shia. Yeah, Shia. I think they were born around the same time. It's amazing. He was listening to some of the class. He's like, I know that. See that? that see that? Kids get it. Kids get it. All right. <laughs> we'll see you guys. Have a good night. Lila Tov, everybody. Bye. Take care.